This is Guns and Butter. I think it has to do with driving money offshore into the world's biggest, now today, believe this or not, the world's biggest bank secrecy holding country, bigger than Switzerland, bigger than the Bahamas, bigger than the Cayman Islands, namely the United States of America, including states like, like Nevada, this is a huge thing, and I think you have to go back to the statement of, of Henry Kissinger back in the 70s, where he said, if you control money, you control the entire world. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, F. William Engdahl. Today's show, Washington's dangerous war on cash, what it's really about. William Engdahl is an international political analyst, economist, and author. He is currently visiting professor of geopolitics at Northwest University, Xi'an, China. Among his best-known books are A Century of War, Anglo-American Oil Politics, and The New World Order, Gods of Money, Wall Street, and the Death of the American Century, and Seeds of Destruction, The Hidden Agenda of Genetic Manipulation, completing a trilogy on the control of oil, food, and money. His latest book is The Lost Hegemon, Whom the Gods Would Destroy, about the CIA and political Islam. Today we discuss his article, The Sinister Agenda Behind the War on Cash, USAID's role in the outline of most currency in India, the U.S. as the new tax haven, and an attack on the euro. William Engdahl, good to have you back again. Well, it's good to be back with you, Bonnie. In The Sinister Agenda Behind the War on Cash, you write that overnight, Narendra Modi's government in India de facto outlawed an estimated 86% of all cash in circulation by value. That would be 86% of the value of all money in circulation was withdrawn. His surprise announcement was on November 8, 2016. What exactly has the Indian government done? This is the most destructive and bizarre act of a state that I can think of in, in recent history in terms of monetary policy. And what they're doing is forcing people to turn in their thousand rupee notes and 500 rupee notes. Now a thousand rupee in, in Western dollar terms is about $15. Most of the Indian economy is informal economy. People, Indians don't trust banks, rightly so. Countries uh, on, on the upper echelons of the, you know, comparative corruption indices, transparency, international, whatever measures you want to take. It's a very corrupt uh, culture. And certainly the political side of that is extremely corrupt. So people don't trust banks to safeguard their money. They use cash. And the vast part of the economy is, is a cash economy. So by outlawing, this would be the equivalent of, of the U.S. Treasury and uh, Trump administration outlawing all cash notes larger than a $10 bill, something like that. And how would you react to that? Oh, $20 bill, $100 bill, you know, $50. You have to bring it into the bank and you may or may not get uh, the equivalent in $10 bills uh, back or you just have to 
depend on electronic digital banking. And Modi, he, he did a, a tricky thing. He began by justifying it as a uh, crackdown on the illegal economy. Well, this is nonsense. Uh, then he came out a little more honestly and said he wants to push the uh, backward Indian people in the villages and the countryside and so forth to get on board digital banking. Well, this is very interesting because it's, as I dug into it, I, I was just flabbergasted when, when I read the reports back in November. And as I finally had time to dig into it in, in uh, some real depth, I found out that the whole scenario of the war on cash of Modi came from the United States Agency for International Development, a uh, cutout for the CIA. And uh, then I wasn't so surprised when I read State Department spokesman Mark Toner back in December at a press briefing, he praised the Modi demonization, saying, this was, we believe, this is a quote, we believe an important and necessary step to crack down on illegal actions, a necessary one to address the corruption. Well, what it's done is bankrupted tens of thousands of small shop, shop owners, uh, creating you know, huge unemployment, but Modi simply seems not to care. He doesn't give a damn about his people. He just, you know, he's there for uh, maybe personal enrichment. I don't know. I had higher hopes when Modi uh, came into the BRICS uh, in a positive way and started talking with China and, and Russia and so forth. I thought, okay, maybe this is a, uh, you know, a good development for the Eurasian economic unity. But uh, what... India has been doing recently indicates that uh, he simply either lost it or he has been a uh, front for Washington all along. Well, I read somewhere that half of the people in India don't have electricity or running water. These, yeah. How are these people supposed to go digital? Well, that's the thing. And half of the people... Uh, there's a beautiful word that USAID prepared all the papers on this. This is an incredible thing. It's a Washington project to destroy the Indian economy. And they wrote a report back in January last year called Beyond Cash, Why India Loves Cash and Why That Matters for what they call financial inclusion. And all that word inclusion means is one of those... Uh, nonsense words that's so popular among some people these days uh means getting all indians into the digital banking system where every single payment can be electronically tracked given to the government tax authorities or whoever the government sees fit you can track every purchase that i make uh, you know if i decide to uh, go to russia on, on holiday uh, that's going to be tracked uh, by the fbi or the cia or somebody uh, homeland security or if I decide to do this or buy that, uh, then comes a knock on the door and say, why were you buying this and what of that? And in India, almost no retail transactions are done in uh, digital bank transfers. 97% are done in cash or in checks. 
and only 11% use uh, debit cards to pay. And only 6% of Indian uh, shopkeepers accept digital payments. 94% don't accept them. And only 29% of bank accounts have been used in the last three months. Indians don't use banks. It's not like United States. It's a, it's a third world country. And to impose this on them. Now, the interesting thing is who's behind this USAID initiative. And there I found something called the Global Innovation Exchange. Now, what in the world is the Global Innovation Exchange, Bonnie? Well, it turns out it's an organization set up by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who are always there on the front lines of doing good for people in this world, always there with an arm around the helpless and the poor and the needy to give them GMO uh, Monsanto food products in Africa with the Green Revolution, uh, or what will you? So the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is in there on the Modi Cash War. Uh, the U.S. Department of Commerce is in there, UNICEF, United Nations Development Program, and something really weird, a spooky McLean, Virginia military contractor called MITRE Corporation, whose chairman used to be former CIA director James Schlesinger, close friend of Henry Kissinger. So this is, is really uh, getting beyond bizarre. And then there's another organization called Project Catalyst of the USAID, which partnered with the Indian Finance Ministry. And there, not only the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, again, putting their arms around the poor and the needy and anybody who needs a helping hand in this world, our Visa, MasterCard, Omidyar Network of eBay billionaire founder Pierre Omidyar, the World Economic Forum, this uh, gargantuan multi-million billion dollar thing of the globalization annual uh, Alpine meetings, and uh, something called the Better Than Cash Alliance. The Better Than Cash Alliance, what is that? It's based in Washington. It's cooperating with the Indian uh, Finance Ministry, and it seems to be the key public driver of this war on cash. So this thing stinks to high heaven, and then you find that key Western financial uh, muckety-mucks like Larry Summers, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary who appealed Glass-Steagall under Bill Clinton and who played a very shady role in the 1990s rape of Russia through his Harvard cronies, uh, is now calling for eliminating the U.S. $100 bill. It's just like what's going on in India. It's a first step. And in Germany, the European, or Europe in the Eurozone, the European Central Bank is calling for eliminating the 500 euro note, the same thing. And they're saying this will make uh, consumers much more efficient in terms of moving money around and uh, da, 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 da. But in fact, it's the most totalitarian thing you can imagine. Every move you make, everything you buy will be monitored by Big Brother. And that's the war on cash. Well, as well, when we talk about India, and obviously they're they're using India as their their first guinea pig, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, I guess they must figure that if if they can pull it off in India, they could pull it off anywhere because India's yeah. not prepared for this. Yeah, 
Is this a recipe to kill off a bunch of the population? I'm reminded of this idea that's been floating around for a, a few years now of depopulation. Could this be part of it? It could well be, although I, I'm not sure that that's the upper most part of it. Uh, other countries are well along the road of, of outlawing cash, among them Sweden in the European Union. Uh, there you almost have difficulty to find a retailer that will accept cash, only credit cards or bank cards. It started about uh, two years ago after a Davos World Economic Forum where this was one of the subjects. And I think it has to do with driving money offshore into the world's biggest, now today, believe this or not, the world's biggest uh, bank secrecy holding country, bigger than Switzerland, bigger than the Bahamas, bigger than the Cayman Islands or the Gibraltar or Jersey Islands, namely the United States of America, including Las Vegas, states like, like Nevada and uh, North Dakota, South Dakota. So this is a huge thing. And I think you have to go back to the statement of, of Henry Kissinger back in the 70s, where he said, if you control money, you control the entire world. And if you can get all that money into banks and get everybody going digital, then look what you can do with digital uh, bank accounts. You can do anything you want with people's money. So uh, this is this is 1984 on steroids, in my view. I'm speaking with international political analyst, economist, and author William Engdahl. Today's show, Washington's Dangerous War on Cash, what it's really about. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You mentioned that in 2010, the U.S. passed a law, the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, or FACTA, that requires financial firms to disclose foreign accounts held by U.S. citizens and report them to the U.S. IRS tax office, or else the foreign banks would face steep penalties. Now, when I was living in France around that time, I went yeah. to a, a Democratic Club meeting in Nice for Americans living abroad, and they were yeah. discussing this. Uh-huh. Americans living abroad there were renouncing their U.S. citizenship and or moving their money, I think, to Monaco. But you write that the United States domestically is one of the very few countries that do not require these bank disclosure rules. How do you interpret <laughs> this? <laughs> very simple. Well, the United States is in very good company not uh, adopting FACTA. Uh, the other countries that have refused are Nauru, a money laundering center, island, uh, Vanuatu, and Bahrain. So there you have it. And very simply, we want to impose that on the rest of the world, but we want to open the United States banking system as an offshore banking system. And I think this is a very, very major part of the so-called Panama Papers scandal back last May 2016, that it was designed to panic 
big money holders who thought they were uh, secure offshore, you know, many of them quite legitimate. If you have an offshore account, doesn't mean you're a criminal. But they want privacy with their money, and they don't want Uncle Sam snooping about it. Well, after the Panama Papers scandal, money started flowing out of Swiss-numbered bank accounts into Reno, Nevada. The, the business has become so big that uh, the great uh, London bank N.M. Rothschild and co. have set up uh, an office in Reno, Nevada. <laughs> you know, this is, this is something very big going on here. So I think the, uh, as long as the dollar is the world currency of reference, uh, the U.S. government has enormous power over everybody in the non-cash financial system and make everyone obey American law rather than their international or German law. And uh, look at what they did recently with the Germany's largest bank, Deutsche Bank. The U.S. government, unprecedented. First, they were going to impose a $3 billion fine for uh, illegal dealings and dumping uh, subprime mortgages back in 2007, 2008, which they did. Uh, Ackerman, then the chairman of Deutsche Bank, bragged about it on German television. Uh, by the way, Ackerman should be uh, tried and indicted and put behind bars, in my view. He's no longer head of Deutsche Bank, but he's the one who ruined Deutsche Bank in the last 10 years, 15 years. Uh, the U.S. government then suddenly raised the fine from $3 billion to $14 billion, and Deutsche Bank was... Uh, in the German media was being discussed as a candidacy for state nationalization, which may not have been the worst solution, but of course the American government with their free market ideology was very hard pressed to back away from that. So these are weapons that Washington has developed. You can believe that under Goldman Sachs' Treasury Secretary Munchen, ain't going to play softball with, with uh, the rest of the world. They're going to they're gonna really come down and dirty. And uh, so this, this whole uh, international bank, uh, the, the factor thing is not operable for U.S. citizens inside the U.S., but the OECD took factor and made a, the OECD is the Organization of uh, Economic Cooperation and Development, something set up after World War II and based in Paris. But they uh, have groups on money laundering and different things. And they established a global factor far, far tougher than the American factor uh, in two years ago, 2014, to go after tax evasion. 97 countries have agreed to this OECD new uh, rules, but the U.S. not, again. So... We're talking about a major reorganization of global capital flows. And I think this is very much the Trump economic policy. Peter Navarro, uh, Wilbur Ross, Mnuchin, uh, the Treasury Secretary from Goldman Sachs, and so forth. Now, you've, you've been talking about FACTA, and of course, that's the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. Um, mm-hmm. When the OECD... Uh, enacted these rules. Is that on behalf of the governments in Europe? Yeah, yes, not only all members of the OECD, which is 
a huge organization, and 97 countries have agreed to the OECD rules. Well, that's right. So then all of the banks in all of these countries that have agreed to these rules, where do they report the accounts? Are they reporting them to the U.S. government or to their own governments? No, to their own governments, yeah. So German accounts uh, in Switzerland have to be reported to the German government, you know, that, that kind of thing. And a lot of Germans have accounts, uh, well-to-do Germans, not only, but uh, people with life savings, and it's a saving country, have accounts in Switzerland or Liechtenstein, and uh, they value their privacy. Some of them are tax avoiders, uh, of course, but uh, others simply don't want Big Brother uh, knowing what they're doing with their money, and I don't blame them. So now, what is going on with regard to people who are using the U.S. as a tax haven? Say, like, like you pointed out, in Las Vegas, Nevada, where you've written about a few other uh, states in the U.S., are people that are putting their money into the United States then not required to report it to the U.S. government and also to their own government? So the U.S. is not going to report this. Is that right? No, that's, that's my understanding, and that's pretty incredible. Uh, the director of Rothschild and Company in the U.S., Andrew Penny, uh, made the comment that the United States today is, quote, effectively the biggest tax haven in the world. Tax haven is where you don't pay taxes because you don't declare it. So, <laughs> and it's interesting they picked Nevada, the Rothschild, because Nevada was set up with legalized gambling back during the Depression by Meyer Lansky, the head of Murder Incorporated as to become the new Switzerland. What is Project Catalyst or Catalyst Inclusive Cashless Payment Partnership? Now that is an initiative of USAID, isn't it? You mentioned some of these other organizations. Yeah, the Project Catalyst uh, is a USAID project in cooperation with the Indian Finance Ministry. And it includes the names I mentioned earlier, Visa, MasterCard, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, USAID, eBay founder Pierre Omidyar, the World Economic Forum of Davos, and uh, something called the Better Than Cash Alliance, which is one of the key figures in the war on cash. Uh, By the way, let me just uh, add an addendum. The Better than cash or life. I mean, there's so many groups they spin off. It's you, you get dizzy here. But the uh, Better than Cash Alliance has some 50 members. In addition to the Gates Foundation, it includes something called the City Foundation of Citigroup Bank, Ford Foundation, which is tightly connected with the CIA historically, Mastercard, United States Agency for International Development, and Visa. So, you know, this is this is. Big, big, big. <laughs> uh, they're trying to go for global control. I don't think it's going to work. I think it's going to blow up in their face, frankly. But they're trying. Well, I hope you're right. Now, there's also, in addition to, now you've mentioned Project Catalyst, Global Innovation Exchange, Better Than Cash Alliance. Now, what is this cashlesscatalyst.org? That's just another piece of this, right? Mm-hmm. 
yeah, there's virtually no difference. It's just uh, spin-offs. So you have a, a dazzling array of little front groups. It's like what the Communist Party used to do during the 30s in the United States, <laughs> create all these front groups. Is there a larger global agenda behind the demonetization or the war on cash move by the government of Modi in India? What is the larger global agenda? Now, obviously, this is a huge move on behalf of many powerful groups. Where do you think this is going so that uh, the U.S. can control the financial system globally? Is that the idea? Absolutely. I'm convinced. I'm convinced the U.S. is writing the laws. Everybody else has to obey them. If you bring your hot money into the U.S., no questions asked. If uh, you're an American and you want to put your money in a Swiss bank account, you better be careful, boy. So it's uh, total control. There's never been anything like this in history. You know, you could always move a little bit of cash around. Now they're reducing the amount. When I went to my uh, my German bank the other day to make a transfer to another bank uh, of 5,000 euros, I was told that's not allowed by the new rules. Nothing above 4,999 euros is allowed to make on a single day. Well, what if you're buying a house or buying a new car or something like that? So it's really a restriction of basic human freedoms, I would say. And that's, that's where this is going. This is going toward, uh, what, what can you call it, global fascism. Wow, that, that's really shocking. They wouldn't even let you move 5,000 euros from one bank to another bank? That's crazy. Yeah, in the same city. In the same city. I had to do it in two installments. Well, as well, I mean, I'm thinking of India, but I, it would apply to the United States or any country. If they do away with cash, they're going to destroy huge sectors of the economy, aren't they? In the U.S., I don't think so. In Sweden, they've been, Sweden is a very modern economy, as you know, I'm sure. And there, they've done this, and it's, uh, you know, Swedes are used to using their credit cards to pay for dinner you know, to pay for a, a, a bus ticket. It's, it's a very common thing. So it's a cultural uh, convenience, and it's safer than carrying, you know, a few hundred uh, Swedish crowns of, of cash around with you. So, uh, you know, it's not like India, but it's it's the control. It's the control. It's, uh, you know, they will, every single thing you buy is going to be Every book you buy, every record you buy, every DVD you buy, if you go in a restaurant and uh, do this and that, it's total profiling, even more than Facebook and Twitter and all this other social media that the CIA is behind. It wouldn't simply be a question of running down unpaid taxes. This would be a way as well to follow political dissidents. I had a friend, she was... Um, her husband was going to North Korea. They were from South Korea. They were political activists with regard to North Korea. And she told me this is years ago. They knew immediately that he'd gone to North Korea because it was on his credit card. Yeah. So it's a digital trail that every move you make, no matter where you go. And I live in Germany. I go to China. I go to Russia quite often on business. 
uh, I have dear friends in both of those places and so forth. But what if uh, the U.S. government says, okay, that's a criminal act. We know you did this on this and this date and so forth. It's, it's the kind of thing we're talking about. And uh, we're going uh, from the United States, going to, uh, I don't know, some country in Central America, and then they put that on the blacklist. You know, it's just giving too much power to, to Big Brother, and I'm against that fundamentally. This is a patriarchic domina submissive system that's being foisted on us and it's you know it's bad enough before but uh, this control of the money is fascism pure no other word for it I'm, I'm talking about benito mussolini corporativist fascism where the state and the banks control trade unions control people control every organization from top down well, now, when you said that you didn't think this war on cash ultimately was going to work, why do you say that? It seems to me that they've got such a grip on things, maybe they could make this work and just let everybody suffer. Not in the United States. I don't think so. I think we have, we have enough of an independent streak that uh, when people get a, a whiff of what's going on, if they tried to do this overnight, like in India, there there would be 10 million people in the street with, with baseball bats going after the Treasury Department. And yeah. they haven't tried. They've been very careful so far in the U.S. for that reason, I think. I'm speaking with international political analyst, economist, and author William Engdahl. Today's show, Washington's Dangerous War on Cash, What It's Really About. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, now, what about in Germany and in Europe? Do you think that the people there are going... It doesn't seem to me that they would be much different than Americans in this regard. Absolutely. You could not pull this off in Germany today. You could not pull it off. Angela Merkel pulled off this refugee thing. We love you. We're the great Germany of accepting the tired and the poor and the huddled masses. And afterwards, people said, oh, my God, what did we do? But this with the money, I tell you, the Germans have gone through two world wars in the last century in a very, very brutal way. They've lost everything several times in the hyperinflation of the 1920s, uh, the post-war period in the late 40s and 50s. And if there's one thing the Germans will react to, it's when somebody messes with their private savings, their private money. So when this proposal came out, not from German government, but from the European Central Bank, which is headed by an Italian, Mario Draghi, former Goldman Sachs uh, guru, the head of the Bundesbank came out and said, I don't think this is an idea that will be accepted by German people when they wanted to eliminate the 500 euro note. So, you know, even that august institution of the finance said, it ain't going to fly here. So I, I don't think it will. I don't think it will. Oh, so they haven't outlawed the $500 euro note? No, 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 no. no. They, they, they talk about it, uh, but they haven't done it yet. I see. Now, a lot of the excuse given for the war on cash is to eradicate corruption and uh, underground economies, black money. 
But it's not going to have that effect, right? Because what I've heard about, particularly in India, the black money, is it's not held by little people with cash. It's all going out of the country or it's in gold. It's, gold, it's, yeah. It's being controlled by the wealthy, and this is not going to affect them, right? Not at all. That's the point, yeah. And uh, the big money movers, dirty money movers, uh, the drug cartels and so, they'll dance circles around this. There's no problem for them. They'll just open an account with N.M. Rothschild in Reno, Nevada, and bring their drug money uh, profits there and take it out of Switzerland. Now, let me clarify something about what's going on in the U.S. Obviously, the U.S. government, let's say I have a bank account, that information is available to the government, isn't it? How would these tax havens work in this country? Would it go by the states? Would they not be reporting this money to the U.S. government? This I don't know. This, this we have to look at. But when they say an offshore money center, they're talking about foreign bank accounts Let's say uh, a German billionaire, uh, Baron Bornemese or Thyssen, uh, wants to put his billions in a Reno account with, with N.M. Rothschild because he's afraid of Switzerland disclosure and da 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 da. Uh, nobody is going to tell the Swiss government that the Baron has put his money in Reno, Nevada through N.M. Rothschild. And this is why the economic team of Donald Trump, uh, including his new ambassador to the European Union, are talking about trillions of dollars coming into the United States in the next years. They're counting on a massive macro shift of global capital flows into the U.S. economy. And that's a huge thing. It's going to... I just uh, completed a piece that will be posted on the internet and on my website, williamengdahl.com, in probably the next week, about Trump's comments and, and Navarro, Peter Navarro, his trade advisor, comments about Germany being a currency manipulator. And I think what they're doing is preparing to destroy the euro, and it wouldn't be very hard right now. So we could talk about that for a moment if you want. Well, I'd love to talk about that. He has created a new position of trade czar, if you want to call it that, uh, named Peter Navarro. And Peter Navarro is a very, very much hardliner. On He's the one that recommended to scrap the Trans-Pacific uh, TTP and the Transatlantic TTIP or whatever it's called and also renegotiate NAFTA. He said the Chinese are currency manipulators and they have uh, you know, ruined our domestic economy and our jobs. There's certain truth to some of these statements as well. Don't deny. But then now he's focused on Germany as a currency manipulator. And this is very interesting. Currency manipulator is a term used by the U.S. Treasury. It's been applied to three nations, including Japan in the last... 30, 40 years, is very seldom used. But to accuse Germany of being a currency manipulator, Merkel responded by saying monetary policy of Germany is not controlled by Germany, but by the European Central Bank, by treaty agreement. 
and they are independent. So we have no control, even if we wanted to. And on, on paper, that's correct. But the reality is European Central Bank was set up by Helmut Kohl and the Germans in 1994 and to 1999 to reflect the advantage of Germany. Fix forever the relation between Portugal, Italy, France, and Greece, and, and, and these countries uh, to the advantage of Germany. So uh, I think thereafter, they're going to knock out the euro. I'm sympathetic to that in a certain way, I have to confess, because I never for once as an economist subscribe to the euro as anything positive. It's a complete uh, misconception. It's a, it's a banker's concept of, of a future Europe as a superpower and not a European concept for European populations. Well, with the euro, uh, all of the countries lose their sovereignty and they can't, uh, the European countries can't issue their own debt, right? And so... It's, it is a disaster on, on that level. I didn't know that the European Central Bank was set up to favor Germany. Mm -hmm. This I, I followed as a journalist, as a financial journalist, in great detail at, at the time during the 90s, uh, going to Brussels and, and banking conferences and so forth, talking to almost everybody, including Hans Dietmeier, the head of the Bundesbank at the time. Uh, the history of the euro is quite fascinating because in 1991, there was a European Heads of State conference in Maastricht, Holland, by all the heads of government of the European Economic Community, it was called back then, a very loose kind of federation. And... Suddenly, out of the blue, Helmut Kohl, who was chancellor at that time, was confronted by Italy, Britain, and France, Mitterrand of France, John Major of Britain, who would replace Thatcher, and Andreotti of Italy, uh, three of the most cunning politicians of the European community. And they demanded of Germany, of Kohl, the surrender of the Deutschmark and the power of her Bundesbank Central Bank, at that time the most respected central bank in the world, to a new independent supranational structure that became known as the European Central Bank. And Kohl was completely caught off guard. I know this from uh, people who, who were present as, as uh, journalists there at, at the Maastricht talks. And Kohl was completely shocked, and he said, well, Germany's position is, first we should have a political union before we can have a monetary union. And uh, they said, no, this is how we're going to do it. If you want to have a unified Germany, Germany is going to become such a powerhouse economically that we, other European countries, want to control Germany through the European Central Bank. So, in the beginning, as you can imagine, Helmut Kohl was foot-dragging on embracing the euro, or what became the euro. And then, here's the interesting part, 
a friend of mine, a, a very close friend of mine, who's an economist and a banker uh, from Denmark, spoke at a conference in London in 1994 with Henning Christofferson. Christofferson recently passed away, so I feel at liberty to reveal this. And Christofferson was the Danish commissioner under Jacques Delors, the president of the European Commission, for economics and currency relations in the European Economic Community, primarily responsible for hammering out what became the euro. And he was privy to all the debates and discussions among the governments of the future euro. And he told this Danish friend of mine uh, over drinks after this conference, and I know this friend very well, he didn't uh, distort this at all, said the attitude of Germany, especially Helen Kohl, toward introduction of a single euro has changed 180 degrees since 1991. And uh, my friend said, why this? And he said, well, look at what's happened in European banking. Since 1991, the French banks are in the existential crisis, Credit Lyonnais, they're all in disastrous shape. Italy, the same thing. And just hanging on by a thin lifeline, which they still are, by the way. And the British banks were in their deepest real estate debt crisis. And uh, the German banks, Deutsche Bank and the other top German banks, convinced Kohl that if Germany does it right, the euro can secure Germany at the head of Europe for the next century or more. And a little bit after this, uh, I was at a banking conference in Frankfurt sponsored by the Frankfurt banks, the big German banks. And the guest keynote speaker was Helmut Kohl. And I thought, okay, let's hear what he has to say. And Cole gave the most passionate speech I'd ever heard him give on television or elsewhere, but this is in person. He said, the euro is the key to bind Europe so that no future war between European nations will be possible. And the bankers there gave him a standing ovation. In other words, Helmut Kohl was 150% behind the euro for this reason. So when Navarro and, and Trump start attacking German BMW imports and threatening 35% import tariffs and so forth, they're not only talking about BMW, they're talking about the euro and Germany as a currency manipulator. And there's a certain amount of truth to that, but the, the deeper point is Washington under Trump is out to dismantle this Eurozone as a potential threat to the dollar as world currency reserve. That's the basis for U.S. power. The dollar is currency reserve and, and the uh, uh, U.S. military is, is the largest military in the world. If you lose either one of those, game, game up, game over. So it's a, it's a fascinating thing. The, the, the Trump uh, economic agenda, if you read the background papers of Peter Navarro, the new trades are, and Wilbur Ross, the new commerce secretary, they wrote it together. And look at the comments of the Trump nominee for Brussels ambassador to the EU. They're talking about the end of the euro. 
they're talking about going short on the euro. And this is going to be a big global shock. I'm speaking with international political analyst, economist, and author William Engdahl. Today's show, Washington's Dangerous War on Cash, what it's really about. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Does the euro really threaten the dollar, a number one, or are they trying to take it down or attack Europe so that the money from Europe would flow into the U.S.? I think both. The euro, the reason for the Greek crisis, as I wrote at the time, back in 2010, when suddenly it was discovered that the Greek government had cheated on its uh, Maastricht criteria for deficit and, and public debt, came from Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs in 2002 had set up the arrangements, the derivative arrangements, to allow the Greek government to hide their true their fiscal state from, from Brussels so they could stay in the euro. And then suddenly that, that came, came to light. And uh, uh, it came to light at precisely the time the Chinese were threatening to pull out of the dollar from its treasury bonds because the U.S. debt levels were going uh, astronomically higher under, under uh, Bush and then uh, Obama. So this was currency war. This was a U.S. currency war to eliminate the euro as an alternative to the dollar as world reserve, which it was threatening at that point to become. But now I think they just, they just want to get rid of the euro as a potential at all. Just get get the damn thing off off the agenda. Let's deal with national currencies. Let's deal with the Deutschmark, the French franc, and so forth. Ironically, if the European politicians weren't so damn corrupt, they could see this as an opportunity to get back from a bad deal at the beginning. But they're damn corrupt, <laughs> so they're going to fight tooth and nail to hold on to this dysfunctional euro. It's a very interesting fight that's shaping up. If the countries in Europe go back to national currencies, obviously each country could, could issue its own debt, etc. It would solve a lot of economic problems. But then the smaller countries uh, with smaller economies, they would be more easily manipulated by Wall Street, say, wouldn't they? I mean, wouldn't they be in even more danger, perhaps? I don't think so. Look at Greece, you know, Greece and the euro was smashed by Wall Street. Well, that's true. Uh, no, I, I think uh, I'm very firm that borders matter. Borders, I've said this before, I think, on your program, Bonnie, but uh, human borders matter. If somebody tries to violate my space, I'm within my rights to defend my space, especially if they try violently. And the same thing with nations. National sovereignty, I don't think, is passé. I don't think it's it's a relic. I think this is essential to existence on this planet, at least in the state the world is in right now. We're not so advanced that we can all treat each other as brothers in love and human beings and so forth. We just ain't there. So let's take the state of the art and say, at least let's defend our national borders. So I think it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world that would happen to Europe. De Gaulle had a vision he called Europe of the fatherlands. 
And he meant that uh, the agreements between, at that time, I think uh, 10 or 12 nations of the European economic community should be between sovereign governments. It's beneficial for Germany, it's beneficial for Belgium, it's beneficial so to eliminate uh, border controls on this, that, and the other thing. And uh, there's no downside. It's not beneficial to do this, so we leave that off the table. Item by item, you negotiate this as national governments. But now you have this unelected, faceless bureaucracy in Brussels, fascism pure. I keep coming back to this word because if, if, if listeners don't know what this word means, if they know it only as an emotional word, they should look it up in detail in the historical dictionary. This is fascism pure, what exists in Brussels. There are no democratic checks and balances. The European Parliament has no democratic checks and balances. The European Commission, no democratic checks and balances. This came clear in the glyphosate controversy last summer. Uh, glyphosate is the most widely used you know, weed killer herbicide in the world. It's used in Monsanto Roundup. It's used in almost every... And it's been proven by the World Health Organization to be a probable carcinogen. Well, that's pretty alarming. I, I think if I were a responsible European Commission, I would say, let's put a freeze on spraying our crops and our gardens and our schools with glyphosate until we settle this question. And there were a million petitions signed by European citizens saying the same thing. There were teams of scientists that said the same thing. And the Brussels commissioner responsible for the health of the European population said, okay, we make a compromise. We renew the license for 18 months. And now it's come out in independent studies that glyphosate in micro concentrations, much smaller than is recommended by the European Union or the uh, EPA in the U.S. causes fatty liver disease, causes uh, horrendous health issues and death. So, you know, because it's supposedly to the benefit of farmers to keep this on the market, they allow this to poison to be sprayed on our crops for another year and a half. This is, I think this is eugenics. I think this is population reduction on a scale in Brussels. Uh, I, I can't come to any other conclusion. It's criminal. If the euro were done away with and the countries of Europe went back to their nation state status, then what's going to happen with Germany? Hopefully more sensible policies. You know, I've lived in Germany for 30 years and I've watched this country go from a rather decent functioning consensus society to a top-down, I would call it dictatorship. Angela Merkel says, and you click your heels and you obey. And it didn't start out that way. Yeah. Even Helmut Kohl, who was a brutal political fighter, uh, you know, didn't uh, do such things. So, and Deutsche Bank, just look at that, from the assassination by the CIA of Alfred Harrells and the chairman of Deutsche Bank, who had a plan in 1989, and he was a close economic advisor of Helmut Kohl on, uh, on the question of Eastern Europe and, and Russia. 
at the collapse, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union, he had a project for building high-speed rail links between Berlin and Moscow. Infrastructure, economic ties. You know, if you don't have trade, you have war. And Washington said, let's have war. So they assassinated Herrhausen. The rest is history. Uh, yes, his name was Herrhausen, right? Alfred Herrhausen. I, I yes. heard him speak in Frankfurt several times. He was very charismatic and a brilliant man. Very educated. He had a vision for Germany and a vision for debt relief for Poland and other countries that simply Wall Street couldn't, couldn't stomach. What year was he assassinated? He was assassinated uh, just at the beginning of the German, when the Berlin Wall fell down. That was November 1989. And he was assassinated just a few days after that. Yeah, in the end of November. 9th of November, the wall came down, the Berlin Wall. You remember this historic event when people were dancing on the wall and yeah. the people coming across. It was very moving. People, the symphony was playing Beethoven's Ode to Joy. And then on 30th November, outside his home, he was blown sky high. It was said by something called the Red Army Faction, the terrorist group. The sophistication of that operation points to CIA and U.S. intelligence. They're the only ones who had the motive to, to blow him out of the picture because he would have created an entirely different economic space between Germany and Russia. And that's something the head of Stratfor, uh, George Friedman, said in an interview a couple of years ago, said it's been U.S. strategic policy for more than a century to prevent an alliance between Germany and Russia. And I maintain that's a very foolish policy. It was also the British policy, and it's led to two world wars. Let nations come together. You know, the United States could benefit from a thriving, healthy European economy. But they seem to, the people who are in charge in Wall Street who've made a coup d'etat over the political uh, institutions of America in the last 30 years, what I talk about in the Gods of Money book, uh, you know, they don't want that. They just want money, money and power. Yes. Uh, I did have a, a someone on the show who, who talked about that assassination of Harehouse, and I'm glad you went over that. That's very important. Mm -hmm. It was very important. It was a decisive. And a few months later, the head of the Troyhound for Helmut Kohl, the agency entrusted with reorganizing the East German communist economy, the state economy, and privatizing all these factories and workers and so forth. Uh, Detlef Roveder was also assassinated in his uh, sitting in his living room on Sunday afternoon by Red Army faction. This is all CIA dirty tricks, black operations. Uh, and what that did was to just completely knock the economic policy of, of the German government from one of building infrastructure, something the Germans do very well, by the way, or did very well, to one of turning East Germany into a uh, 
tourist uh, attraction instead of a high technology industrial area, which everyone was expecting in Germany a year before, and uh, turning Russia into a target for plunder, for looting. William Engdahl, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Bonnie. I always enjoy talking with you. I've been speaking with F. William Engdahl. Today's show has been Washington's Dangerous War on Cash, What It's Really About. William Engdahl is an international political analyst, economist, and author. Among his best-known books are A Century of War, Anglo-American Oil Politics, and the New World Order, Gods of Money, Wall Street and the Death of the American Century, and Seeds of Destruction, The Hidden Agenda of Genetic Manipulation, completing a trilogy on the control of oil, food, and money. His book, Target China, How Washington and Wall Street Plan to Cage the Asian Dragon, has been a bestseller in Chinese. His latest book is The Lost Hegemon, Whom the Gods Would Destroy, about the CIA and political Islam. Visit WilliamEngdahl.com to sign up for a free bi-monthly geopolitical newsletter. That's WilliamEngdahl.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaro Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at GunsAndButter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at Faulkner at GunsAndButter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. Release. You dig me?